Hello and welcome to the Secular Buddhism Podcast, a podcast that presents Buddhist teachings, concepts, and ideas from a secular perspective. You don't need to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learn to simply be a better whatever you already are. I am your host, Noah Rochetta, and let's jump into today's topic. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I thought it would be fun to revisit one of the most basic and fundamental teachings in Buddhism. That is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are the most fundamental teachings of Buddhism. They serve as the foundation of the entire Buddhist worldview, and they offer a path to understand the nature of existence and suffering. Before jumping in, I want to share a quick note about language. The Buddha likely spoke a language called Magadhi Prakit, the language of ancient Magadha in northern India, and his teachings were initially transmitted orally around 500 BCE. They were later written down in Pali, as found in the Pali Canon, and many Buddhist terms are still expressed in both the Pali and Sanskrit languages. So understanding these ancient teachings in English can be a little challenging. Sometimes the meaning may be lost in translation, similar to the children's telephone game where a message is altered as it's relayed. So keep this potential for distortion in mind, not only with Buddhist teachings, but really all ancient teachings. As I go through some of these teachings, I'll be sure to mention the original Pali word and the English equivalent or English translations that may be suitable as a way of understanding that specific teaching or word. The Four Noble Truths, as individual words in the original Pali language, would be dukkha, samudaya, niroda, and maga. Now, these words, again, have different translations. There are different ways that we can use these words. Dukkha is suffering or unsatisfactoriness, stress or unease. Samudaya is origin or cause. Niroda is cessation, ending, or confinement. And maga is path. And the reason I want to highlight this is because it'll make sense as I go into the more in-depth explanation of each part of the four noble truths. So let's start with the first one. Life is characterized by suffering or dissatisfaction. That is the first noble truth. And this includes frustration, dissatisfaction, and distress as part of the normal human experience. In other words, this is to say life is difficult, which leads us to the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is clinging or craving, driven by ignorance of the true nature of reality. This includes craving for sensory pleasures, uh, clinging to desires, and holding to things that are impermanent. The cause of suffering is essentially wanting things to be other than how they are. So we have the first one, life entails a certain amount of difficulty and suffering. The second one is suffering arises from wanting things to be other than how they are. This leads us to the third noble truth, that it is possible to be free from suffering by letting go of craving and attachment. And this state is achieved when one lets go of grasping and aversion and rests in the calm clarity of the present moment. The fourth noble truth is the path, that there is a path that leads to the complete liberation from suffering. 
This is called the Eightfold Path, also known as the Middle Way Path, and that's the path that leads to the end of suffering. So the Four Noble Truths diagnose the problem of suffering, identify the cause of suffering, assert that suffering can be overcome, and then provide a path to do so. And this process is akin to a doctor identifying an ailment, determining its root cause, confirming its curability, and then outlining a course of treatment. That is the essence of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So I want to look at each one of these in greater detail because, as I mentioned at the beginning, these are the most fundamental teachings of Buddhism, and it's important to understand these teachings in in detail because every other teaching makes sense in the context of the understanding of this specific teaching. So the first noble truth essentially states the problem. What is the problem? Well, the problem is that life is characterized by suffering or dissatisfaction. The first noble truth, known as the truth of suffering, is the word dukkha. And this is where it's helpful to know some of the other translations of this word, because dukkha can be translated as suffering, but it can be so much more than suffering. It it can be unsatisfactoriness, it can be stress, it can be unease, and that helps to highlight the situation that's happening here with this truth of suffering. This teaching recognizes the pervasive nature of dissatisfaction and suffering in life. According to Buddhist teachings, there are different types of dukkha, different types of suffering. The first is called the suffering of suffering. And this is the most apparent form of suffering that includes physical pain, emotional distress, and all kinds of discomfort or difficulties that we might experience in life. Sickness and old age are examples of this type of suffering. The second type of suffering is called the suffering of change, and this refers to the suffering that arises from the impermanent nature of happiness and pleasure. Everything that brings us joy and satisfaction is temporary, so clinging to these pleasures can lead to suffering when they inevitably change or disappear. For example, the the joy of a new environment or a new possession eventually fades, leading to dissatisfaction. Things are impermanent. So that refers to that second type of suffering. The third type of suffering is called all-pervasive suffering. And this is a more subtle form of suffering that refers to the underlying unease or dissatisfaction that comes from our conditioned existence. It's a deep-seated discomfort that comes from being subject to the constant change and impermanence of life, even when things seem to be going well. And this form of suffering is usually rooted in unskillful views or beliefs about ourselves, others, or the world around us. And this type of suffering is said to be the result of ignorance, and it can only be fully understood and overcome through cultivating awareness and wisdom. So this truth teaches that suffering is not always overtly painful or dramatic. It's often subtle, and it underlies our entire experience of life. It's not just about physical pain or emotional distress, but it includes a more profound sense of dissatisfaction and unease that characterizes our overall existence. Now, understanding this teaching, the teaching of the First Noble Truth, It's not meant to lead to pessimism or to create a negative outlook on life. Instead, 
recognizing the presence of suffering in life is considered the first step toward awakening and liberation in Buddhism. By seeing the reality of suffering, one becomes motivated to investigate its cause and follow the path leading to its cessation. It encourages mindfulness, compassion, and a deeper understanding of ourselves and the world around us. So I think this first noble truth is a very important one to understand because it's the, recogni the recognition of life as it is, not how we want it to be, but it's the um, radical recognition and acceptance that this is what is. And in life, difficulties arise. No matter how I live my life, I am going to encounter difficult moments, whether that be sickness, old age, uh, death, loss of a loved one, the discomfort of the temperature outside. You know, we, when it's winter, we long for summer. When it's summer, we long for winter. That's just all part of this general suffering or dissatisfaction that comes with the experience of what it is to be human. So that leads us to the second noble truth, the cause of the problem. The cause of suffering is clinging or craving driven by ignorance of the true nature of reality. The second truth identifies desire or craving as the primary cause of suffering in human life. Now here it's important to highlight that the word in the original teachings in Pali is tana. And tana is generally translated as craving, but it can also mean thirst, desire, longing, or even greed. And that includes both in the physical and the mental sense. So physical and mental craving fit into this. And I like the translation of thirst. It'll play in here in a moment uh, as I explain this concept a little bit more. But let's, let's look at the word craving. The Buddha taught that the root of all suffering is this tanha, or this desire or craving. Suffering is what arises when we want things to be other than how they are. That's the root of suffering. That's what craving means. And this is not limited to, the, again, the physical needs and wants, but it also includes our mental and emotional desires. In other words, I'm feeling this, but I don't want to be feeling this. I want to be feeling that. That desire for things to be other than how they are would create a sense of, of in, inner turmoil or suffering. So the next concept here that's part of the second noble truth is the word attachment. Along with craving, attachment plays a crucial role in generating the suffering that we experience. We become attached to people. We become attached to objects, ideas, beliefs, feelings. And this attachment can lead to suffering when we are separated from these things or when these things change. The impermanence of everything is a fundamental principle in Buddhism, and attachment leads us to an unproductive struggle to hold on to things that are inevitably going to change. Think about that with people. What may frustrate me in a relationship with a person is this person is no longer who they were. I'm frustrated that they've changed when change was actually inevitable, but I want things to be other than how they are. Uh, same thing happens with, with uh, possessions objects, uh, beliefs, and ideas. It's the same there. I want this to always be how, how, um, the same way that it was. So that is where attachment comes into play. Now there's a, another concept here. The, the concept of the three poisons falls into the second noble truth because the 
second noble truth is connected to this idea of the three poisons in Buddhism, the three poisons being ignorance, attachment, and aversion. Ignorance leads to a misunderstanding of the nature of reality, and particularly the nature of, of the self and the impermanence of all things. So this ignorance fuels our attachment to things that we like. We want more of what we like, and we have an aversion to the things that we dislike. And this is the cycle of craving that we get stuck in that leads to suffering. I want more of what I want, and I, and I don't want the things that I don't want. And when my thoughts and my actions are fueled by these three poisons of ignorance, uh, uh, craving, and aversion, um, then it poisons all of my thoughts and words and actions. So that's the idea of the three poisons. So the goal is to break free from this cycle of craving, to not be trapped in the cycle. Understanding the cause of the problem is the first step to overcoming it. By recognizing and understanding the way craving leads to suffering, then one can begin to develop the wisdom and mindfulness needed to break free from the cycle. So the second noble truth emphasizes that the cause of suffering lies in craving and attachment, and it teaches that by understanding the nature of desire and learning how to let go of attachment, one can be, begin to alleviate suffering and move towards a more liberated and peaceful state of being. So now we're going to look at the third noble truth, which is essentially how do we overcome this problem? The third noble truth is the teaching that it is possible to be free from suffering, and this happens by letting go of craving and attachment. The third noble truth proclaims that it is possible to completely cease suffering. And this doesn't just mean a temporary relief from pain or dissatisfaction, but a profound and enduring end to the fundamental existential suffering that pervades life. And, and that's a pretty big claim. So first, let's look at the paradox in this claim. Because if the cause of suffering is craving, and we find ourselves craving to not crave, we will only experience more craving. So how can one escape this apparent dilemma or paradox? Well, the key lies in understanding what craving really means in the Buddhist context. Craving is an unskillful and clinging attachment that comes from ignorance of the true nature of reality. So you could say that craving, as natural as it may be, needs to be separated into two overall categories, what we could call skillful craving versus unskillful craving. You can imagine here, as an example, imagine a person who's striving to become healthier and to be in shape and to lose weight. Their motivation, if it's rooted in, in self-care, a desire for greater well-being and an understanding of what is healthy and not healthy for a body, that could be contrasted with another person who also wants to be healthy and lose weight, but their motivation might be rooted in societal norms and pressure or a sense of self-judgment or the belief that uh, their appearance isn't good enough um, or just rooted in the fear of not being accepted. In both scenarios, you have the desire to get fit or to lose weight. The desire is the same. But the underlying intention and the approach and the relationship that the person has to that desire differs significantly. 
And that's the essence of this understanding of skillful craving versus unskillful craving. Skillful craving aligns with wisdom, compassion, and a balanced understanding of oneself and one's needs. And it leads to actions that are ultimately beneficial and alleviate suffering. Where unskillful craving, on the other hand, it's driven by ignorance, uh, attachment, and aversion, those three poisons, and it tends to perpetuate greater suffering. So when working with craving, it's important to understand what it is that we crave, and perhaps more importantly, why is it that we crave it? This distinction between what and why is central to the practice of overcoming the problem of suffering. So as the second noble truth identifies craving as the cause of suffering, it's the third noble truth that involves the complete letting go or relinquishment of that craving. By relinquishing attachment to desires and cravings, one extinguishes the causes of suffering. So then this begs the question, how do we let go of craving? Well, one way to think about this is the same way that we let go of our breath. When we breathe in, we take in oxygen, which is vital for life. It goes to our muscles. And when we breathe out, we let go of that air that's been used, trusting that more will come with the next breath. We don't cling to the process of breathing because uh, we understand that breathing is a continuous process. It's continually receiving and releasing, where you inhale and you exhale, you receive air and you release air. And this is where the concept of letting go fits in with this overall notion. In much the same way, the practice of non-attachment involves taking in experiences, emotions, and sensations without clinging to them or holding on to them. We appreciate them for what they are in the present moment, and then we let them go, trusting that life will continue to unfold. We don't cling to pleasure or resist pain, but we can accept both of those as just natural and impermanent parts of existence. Pema Chodron talks about this notion in, in the quote where she says that life is a series of moments of things coming together and things falling apart. And that's the natural cycle. It's, it's allowing it to be uh, both. Things sometimes come together and things sometimes fall apart. In the same way, breathing, we're either inhale, inhaling and, and taking in oxygen or we're exhaling. The, that's the process that's always happening. We're breathing in and we're breathing out. When it comes to craving, you can look at this in the same way. Just as we breathe with an, under, with, with an understanding of the natural cycle, the practice of letting go in Buddhism encourages us to release our clinging and our attachments with a sense of ease and trust in this natural flow of life. We let go of, of clinging to ideas that we hold, possessions that we uh, don't want to let go of, desires that we might have, recognizing that these are transient things that are subject to change in the same way that our breath is. The breath comes and the breath goes. Many Buddhist meditation practices use the breath as an object of focus to cultivate mindfulness. Observing the breath with its continuous cycle of in and out can be a profound metaphor for understanding the impermanence of all things, and it can serve as a practical tool for developing 
a stronger sense of non-attachment as a practice. So that leads us to the topic of liberation. The third noble truth offers us a message of uh, hope and liberation. While the first two truths diagnose the problem of suffering and its cause, the third truth provides the assurance that this problem can be overcome. And it's important to note that the cessation of suffering uh, in Buddhism, it's not a mere theoretical concept or something that needs to be believed in as, as in a belief. It's something that's meant to be directly realized and experienced by the practitioner. You can put these uh, methods into practice and experience the actual feeling of learning to let go of craving. Uh, so it's not, it's not a belief. It's uh, an experience to be had. Um, it requires deep insight into the nature of reality, and it requires the practice of mindfulness and practice of meditation. But this third noble truth is the realization that suffering can be completely ended by letting go of craving and attachment. And again, it's not just an abstract philosophical concept. It's a tangible and achievable goal. It requires deep understanding, practice, personal realization, and it represents the ultimate goal of the Buddhist path, which is complete liberation from suffering and the attainment of nirvana. So nirvana here is another word from Pali that I want to highlight because nirvana can be translated as quenching, as in quenching the thirst or, or the craving. It can also be translated as blowing out or extinguishing, as in blowing out a candle or a, a fire. It can be translated as a release, as in the release of our breath as we breathe in and out. And thinking about it in the context of these various translations, you can see that nirvana is the state that is free from that fire, the fire of the three poisons of ignorance, attachment, and aversion. So nirvana is a, a state of mind that's categorized uh, by inner peace, by greater clarity, and by wisdom. I think one of the mistakes that we make when we first encounter Buddhist teachings is to think of them as these far-fetched concepts that are not attainable. Nirvana, oh, what is that? It's an enlightenment. You know, it's something I'll never have, when in reality, it's something that we absolutely can have. And it's, it's a state of, of mind, again, characterized by inner peace, uh, more clarity and wisdom. Who wouldn't want that? And you can have that by practicing. So I think it's important to recognize that these teachings are not something that's, that are out of reach, thinking, well, I have to go meditate in a cave in the mountains for the rest of my life to hopefully get that. No, um, very much the same way that we approach exercise. If you want to be more fit, you just have to start working out and eating healthy. And it's a very simple formula. Working out consistently over a certain amount of time produces a very predictable result. You start to get stronger and more fit. But it doesn't happen overnight. We all know that. You can't go to the gym and work out you know, one day for two or three hours and think, I, I did it. It doesn't work that way. But as a consistent practice, you can confidently say that somebody who, who is physically fit is continually working on that. Um, you can say the same with a garden. A garden is another analogy that's used frequently in Buddhism. 
if you look at a Zen garden or any garden that's very manicured and and nice, you you don't you don't build a garden and then say I'm done. The garden's done because what happens in a week or two weeks or three weeks? You come back and the garden is in disarray. It has weeds. Some of the plants might be uh, wilted. Um, that's not how a garden works. A garden is a continual process of going in, planting new seeds, cultivating, pruning, weeding. You know, it's it's an ongoing process. And this teaching of the Four Noble Truths is like that. It's it's an ongoing process. So that's what leads us now to the fourth uh, of the four of the Noble Truths, which is there is a path that leads to complete liberation from suffering. There's a method, there's a, a path for overcoming the problem of suffering. And the method for doing this is to walk the path. So the understanding of suffering is the first noble truth. It's ca- understanding its causes, the second truth, leads to the realization that suffering can be ended. That's the third truth. And this in turn leads to the practice of the path, which is the fourth truth that will bring about the cessation of suffering. So I want to talk about this path for a moment. The Eightfold Path, or the Middle Way. In Buddhism, the Eightfold Path is the Fourth Noble Truth, and it's commonly referred to or known as the Middle Way, or the Middle Way Path. And it advocates for a balanced and harmonious approach to living, where we avoid extremes. The Middle Way strives for a balanced approach to living life. And it includes eight parts of the path that are categorized into three fundamental elements of Buddhist practice. And those three elements are wisdom, ethical conduct, and mental discipline. So the eight parts of the path that fit there, under wisdom, we have understanding and intention. In traditional Buddhist teachings, you'll encounter these described as right. In other words, right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action. And there are various scholars who will tell you that the translation that gives us the word right is a little misleading. When we think of right, we think of it in terms of right and wrong, as in right understanding versus wrong understanding. But that's not the the connotation of the word. Earlier in the, um, the description with the words and the translations, I mentioned how you can take a word from one language, translate it to another, and then to another, and you kind of lose a little bit of the meaning. Some of it gets lost in translation. Alan Watts was talking about this in a lecture series that I thought was really fascinating, where he says the word that was used to translate or, or to give us the word right in the description of these eight parts of the path is more along the lines of, um, like a, on a fulcrum, like the middle way. It's not to this and it's not to that. And that's what's meant by correct. It's like just the right amount, no more, no less. Rather than right as in right and wrong, it's more like right as in the correct amount. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about this as the middle way, because the middle way, again, is it's a balanced thing. It's about don't be too far to the the left or too far to the right. You need to find the middle way. So when I go through these eight Rather than saying right, I'm going to just give you the word itself uh, of the the, the eight things, but you can understand this in the context of the middle way. What is the middle way of understanding? 
It's, you know, understanding this and that. Somewhere between this and that is the middle way. Uh, so you have understanding and intention, which fall under wisdom. Then you have speech, action, and livelihood under ethical conduct. Then you have effort, mindfulness, and concentration that fall under mental discipline. Now, when you think about these in the context of the middle way, it makes a lot of sense. When I'm studying my intentions or my thoughts, I'm trying to find that middle way. When I think about my ethical conduct, what I say, speech, action, li livelihood, it's the middle way. Uh, so going through each of these individually, understanding is essentially how we view ourselves and the world, how we see, how we understand the world to be. Intention is cultivating intentions of non-attachment, goodwill, and harmlessness. Then we have speech, which is speaking truthfully, harmoniously, and kindly. We have action, which is acting ethically and compassionately. We have livelihood, which is earning a living in a way that doesn't cause uh, harm to others. Then we have, under mental discipline, we have effort, cultivating wholesome qualities and abandoning unwholesome qualities. We have mindfulness, which is developing mindful awareness of the body, feelings, our mind, and, and all things, the world around us. Then we have concentration, which is cultivating deep concentration and uh, using meditative practices to be good at concentrating. Now, I think it's a whole separate podcast episode to, to just go through these eight, so I won't go into them in more depth. But at the heart of all Buddhist teachings, you have this, the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, the path being the fourth one that entails uh, these three practices of cultivating wisdom, having ethical conduct and, and mental discipline. And then within those, you have the actual eight of um, understanding, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And every Buddhist teaching that you will encounter from here on out, if you look at it back in the context of this teaching, the original teaching of the Four Noble Truths, you'll start to have a better understanding of, of why certain things matter and why certain practices are beneficial or how they fit into the overall equation, because the primary goal of Buddhist practice is to uh, live your life in a way where you are cultivating, walking the path or cultivating the method that will lead to a cessation of unnecessary suffering in life. And I think that's such an honorable goal and aspiration to have, uh, to, to try to essentially have greater inner peace in your own life. And inner peace is one of those interesting things because it's a gift that I can give myself while simultaneously benefiting everyone around me. If I cultivate that as a gift in me, it benefits my uh, wife and my children and my coworkers and the people on the street that I'm driving by. Um, it benefits everyone. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And I don't know that there are a lot of gifts like that because a lot of the things that we aspire to have for ourselves don't necessarily benefit everyone else, but inner peace does. And I think that's um, an important thing to clarify here with this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, that the, the problem is that in life, life is difficult. And part of why it's difficult is because we don't want it to be difficult, but there is a way to not have it be so difficult, and that's to uh, cultivate a path where our thoughts and words and actions and, and everything 
uh, end up uh, making it so that we have a little bit more inner peace. Or kind of like I say at the start of the podcast, that we're trying to be a better whatever we already are, because that benefits everyone. All right, so that's all I'm going to share for this specific episode. It's just revisiting one of the most basic teachings, or perhaps the most basic teaching of Buddhism, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And in another podcast episode, I may jump into um, the topic of the Eightfold Path or the Middle Way in greater detail. Now, by way of news, I do want to announce that I have completely revamped the website. One of the concerns I've had with the website for a while now is it's, it's a platform intended for me to share the audio of the podcast. But one of the ways that I like to share is through writing. And you know this, I've done this through writing books. I, I have three books that I've written, and I've been wanting to share more by way of writing on the website to have like a blog or a newsletter or something. But I've never had the system in place to really effectively use the website as a publishing platform or as a blog or as an email newsletter. So I finally put in the time and effort to revamp the whole website. And if you visit secularbuddhism.com, now you'll notice it's completely different. And it is set up where you can subscribe. It's free. You just click subscribe, enter your email, and you'll receive the email newsletter that I intend to publish um, at least once a month, uh, maybe a little bit more often, maybe when a new podcast episode comes out. But in addition to the content that you get through audio, through the podcast, you'll be able to read shorter blurbs and, and read and consume content through reading. And I think that'll be a fun thing for me to be able to put more writing out there but also for you to be able to consume more of these concepts and ideas and teachings, not just in the audio format of the podcast, but you can go on there and, and read like you would a newsletter or a blog. So I encourage you to go visit secularbuddhism.com. Make sure you sign up for the, the newsletter by just entering your e name and email address into the field there. And then, of course, if you're interested in having a community to practice with, you can explore the options of supporting the podcast, supporting the work that I'm doing, and joining the community where we do live Sunday Zoom calls every week. We have uh, lively discussions taking place in our own community platform where we talk about Buddhism and Buddhist teachings and concepts and ideas. All right, well, that's all I have for now. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to connecting again in another episode soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Secular Buddhism Podcast. If you enjoyed today's topic and you want to learn more, visit secularbuddhism.com, where I have links to my books, courses, podcast episodes, and information for how to join the Secular Buddhism Podcast community. Thank you for listening. Until next time.